Welcome to A Short History of Symmetry, a series of podcasts from the University of Warwick. In this episode, Professor Ian Stewart looks at the world of quantum mechanics and how symmetry informs our understanding of particles and waves. When Einstein succeeded in giving us a really good theory of gravity, and it was tested by watching light bend as it passed the sun, um, it became clear that there is still a bit of a problem here, which is to do not with gravity, but with light. Because the whole point of Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism is that light is a wave. And the whole point of light bending as it passes the sun is that light is a particle. And somehow it seemed a bit unlikely that light could be both particle and wave at the same time. Except this is what the physicists of the period were beginning to discover. In fact, Einstein himself, in the same year he came up with special relativity, also wrote a paper on the photoelectric effect, which is how light hitting particular metals can knock electrons off and create an electric current. And he explained this in terms of light acting like a particle. So in Einstein's head, light is both particle and wave. Other physicists picked this up and it turned into quantum mechanics, which is one of the most bizarre theories of the physical universe anyone has ever invented. Mathematically very elegant. It works beautifully. It agrees with experiments. It applies mostly on very, very small scales, atoms, preferably smaller than atoms. And if you try and say in words what it tells you, it seems to make no sense whatsoever. So let's try and do that. Quantum mechanics actually views everything in the universe as waves. It's all waves on some sort of quantum sea, um, except there's no sea, they're just the waves. Particles are sort of concentrated lumps of waves, and you can sometimes do experiments to make them behave like particles. You can bounce them off things, you can um, send them through slits and see which one they went through, and they look like particles. Or you can make them interfere with each other, like if you throw a stone in a pond, you get ripples, that's waves. If you throw two stones in a pond, you get a beautiful pattern where the ripples overlap and kind of interfere with each other, cancel each other out. And, and quantum particles behave like this, light behaves like this, but electrons behave like this. And prior to that, people have thought electrons were particles. Quantum mechanics went through a whole series of stages of development in which people are firstly trying to just come to terms with this wave-particle duality. Then they're asking questions about what happens when you measure things in quantum mechanics. And the horrible thing that emerges is, although everything's a wave, you can never observe the wave. You can observe aspects of the wave, but when you try to observe one aspect, you disturb others. And so the whole thing is built on a foundation that you can never completely observe. And this is where we get the story of Schrodinger's cat, which is the cat that is locked in a box with a, a radioactive atom. And if the atom decays, then a bottle of poison gas is broken and the poor cat dies. But you're outside the box and you can't see what's going on. And the atom is in some quantum superposition. It's like two different ripples, one decayed, one not decayed. So the cat is in a quantum superposition of two rippling quantum cats, one alive, one dead. And you can say to yourself, oh, come on, look, for heaven's sake, you know, I mean, the cat knows. Um, 
It's either alive or dead, but we don't find out till we open the box. But it turns out that making sense of all that mathematically is actually quite a profound thing. There are two schools of thought which basically boil down to, yeah, it really is like that with cats. And another one that says, look, hold it, it's, cats are just too complicated a quantum system. Uh, they actually behave like cats. Um, you know, and uh, so, you know, this is complicated, difficult stuff. Um, I am inclined to the view that on the quantum level, a cat is composed of an incredible number of nice quantum systems which superpose, which can be both spin up, spin down at the same time. But by the time it's worked its way up to a cat, it's either alive or dead. It's not both at the same time because it's interacting with the rest of the universe. And it's those interactions, a thing called decoherence, which means that the quantum picture sort of fuzzes out and collapses in a way that would would not happen if it was an electron or a photon or some nice small-scale quantum system. In the early days of quantum mechanics, the physicists were just looking for things they could measure and predict. And so they tried to understand things like the hydrogen atom. And they predicted the, the spectrum of the hydrogen atom. They predicted the particular wavelengths of light that would be emitted from an atom of hydrogen. And you can actually see these in the laboratory, and you can see them if you take um, spectrograph measurements of the sun, let's say. This is how we know there's hydrogen in the sun. We can see the spectral lines. We can see what the theory predicts. And the quantum calculations for the hydrogen atom are spot on. They're absolutely beautiful. And that led for a while to a picture of an atom as a kind of little miniature solar system with electrons buzzing around in orbits. But they couldn't go in any old orbit. There were very specific orbits they could go in. They could only switch from one to another. And so these transitions would explain exactly which energy levels you would see in the spectrum of hydrogen. Now, when the physicists tried to understand more complicated atoms like helium, it turned out doing the sums got rather difficult. This is always the big problem with physical theories. You start to go to the really interesting cases and the maths gets hard. But they buckled down and they did the calculations. And a Hungarian who, who became a naturalised American, um, Eugene Wigner, as the Americans and he pronounced his name, um, said, you know, what's going on here in a lot of these quantum mechanical problems is symmetry groups. Really what's happening, it's all about the symmetries. If you want to understand the spectrum of something, this relates very closely to the symmetries of the system. And most of the physicists looked at this and said, I don't want to understand this symmetry stuff. I don't want to use group theory. I, you know, I want to do my calculus. I want to do my numerical calculations. This is maths of a kind I don't like. And they actually referred to this for a while as the Gruppenpest, which is German for the group disease. But it turned out Wigner was right, and the physicists were being too reactionary, and the whole of quantum mechanics started to get put on a basis, again, of what's important here is the symmetries of the system, the symmetries of the laws. And this turned out to be particularly important if you were trying to understand subatomic particles. The real test bed for a lot of quantum theory is what happens to atoms when you break them up into their component smaller subatomic particles. And it used to be straightforward. It used to be that 
there was a nucleus composed of protons and neutrons, and then there were electrons that went round and round, and that was it. There were three types of particle, and what else did you need to understand? Chemistry could be explained in terms of three basic subatomic particles. But then it got more difficult. The, um, the energy calculations didn't work. There was some energy missing, so there must be another particle nobody can observe. There's a thing called the neutrino. Um, neutrinos pass through thousands of miles of lead without interacting with it at all, but nonetheless we know they exist. And this huge zoo of subatomic particles appeared, which was just a complete mess. And as the theoretical physicists delved into this zoo and tried to structure it, they realised that the way you do this is you look at the symmetries. And there was a great triumph in the 1960s of a thing called the Eightfold Way, which is a, a symmetry group calculation which predicted the existence of a new particle, a thing called the Omega Minus. I mean, you can tell what state physics was in if the new particle is called an omega minus. You know, it's not an electron anymore. They're running out. They're using Greek letters, um, and this was found in particle accelerators. And at the moment, they're looking for the Higgs boson, which is the the one missing particle that theory says should be there. Nobody's found it yet. It explains why everything's got mass um, in ways that I genuinely do not understand at all. But you know, I'm assured by my physics colleagues that's what it's all about, and they're building the next generation of ever bigger particle accelerators to find the Higgs boson. So this kind of game, um, very interesting, very fundamental physics, and it boils down to the symmetries of the particle systems. And those symmetries show up in strange ways. It's almost as if you can mathematically transform one kind of particle into another kind of particle. It's not just obvious symmetries like reflections in space or something like that. You take a particle, you do some mathematical transformation of the equations and out pop the equations for a different kind of particle altogether. But it means if you can understand the first particle, you can easily push your understanding through this mathematical transformation and come up with an understanding of the second particle. So there's this growing understanding of how symmetries structured quantum mechanics, quantum systems, and gave you the, the sort of deep properties of physics on that level. If you would like to find out more about the history of symmetry, Professor Stewart's book, Why Beauty is Truth, is now available. In our final episode, we explore how symmetry relates to string theory and superstring theory.